The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. We, we concluded last year, 2018, with a series entitled Working in the Waiting. Uh, if you were with us, you know this was a series about vocation, or in other words, calling. We were, we were trying to see how each of us, as an individual, is to live out our daily calling, no matter what that is, no matter if that's as a student or as a, a spouse or a stay-at-home parent or within our job. We were trying to see how each of us to live out our daily calling for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom until he comes Again, we are a waiting people, awaiting the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But we don't just sit around doing nothing in the midst of our waiting. No, we are a people who are working in the waiting. We have a calling. We have a a mission, a purpose. And what I want us to see this morning, Shades, is that that's not just true of us as individuals. That's true of us as a people. We... The people of God, the church, we have a a vocation, a calling, a mission, a purpose. What is it? This This is what I want us to explore here at the beginning of 2019. At Shades Valley Community Church, what is our vocation? What is our purpose? Like, Why do we do everything that we do? Why are we doing this now, gathering together week after week, gathering around this word, hearing it proclaimed and preached, singing, praying, communing? Why why do we do everything that we do? And to answer these questions, we're entering into a new series this morning simply entitled Rooted. Rooted. But because that's what we are digging into. What are we rooted in? Like when you dig down Underneath this thing called Shades Valley, when you dig down underneath all that we do, all of our worship, all of our serving, all our community, all of our mission, when you, when you dig down, what's it all rooted in? These aren't new questions for us as a, as a body. We have explored these before. I spent nine months during my first year here as pastor with us exploring the answers to these questions. However, it's been quite some time since we have settled into and asked these questions together on a Sunday morning. As a matter of fact, I look back. The last time we addressed this was 2015. It's been just a hot minute. Just a few of you are are new, and it's important for us to continually set these things before us as a body. These are things, our purpose, these are things that we cannot afford to lose sight of. And we've got to remind ourselves why we do what we do. We've got to keep an eye on our compass lest we drift off course. We've got to sink our roots deep into our purpose lest we become like a tree with no roots, lifeless. So, Simply asking, what are we rooted in? What is our purpose? And for several years now, we've answered that question with a purpose statement. I'm not going to ask you to recite it. I don't want to be depressed. But our purpose statement is glorifying God by loving Him, loving others, making disciples among all 
peoples. Like when you dig down underneath everything we do, when you hit bedrock bottom, this is our purpose. Glorifying God by loving him, loving others, making disciples among all peoples. That purpose statement, it's, it's printed on the cover of your bulletin, has been for years. It's, it's part of a large art display. When you walk out these doors, there's a massive painted tree that is literally rooted in this purpose. You can find this plastered on all of our social media accounts. It's on our website. It's, it's, it's in our podcast. It's in our emails. We, we have plastered this thing everywhere. Why? To constantly keep before us the purpose for which we do everything. Glorifying God by loving him, loving others, and making disciples among all peoples. But, here's the deal. Like, having that statement plastered everywhere doesn't do us any good if we don't understand it and desire it. Like, it's this what we want, what makes our heart beat, do we pulse with, with, with this? Do, do we understand, first of all, do we even grasp what it is, do we understand what it means for our purpose to be glorifying God? What does that look like? How do we do that? Do we understand it? And even more than that, not only do we not understand, but do we want it? Is this our purpose, and not just our purpose, is this our pleasure like, I want to glorify God. I want to love him. I want to love others. I want to make disciples among all peoples because that's my pleasure. That's my joy. That's what I love to do. This statement does us no good if we don't understand it and desire it. So, for the rest of this morning, I simply want to walk us through this statement piece by piece. This is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do. This whole series is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do. What I like to do is preach straight through books of the Bible expositionally. I believe that is what gives us the best meat as a body and makes us strongest over time, is that you don't get Jonathan, but you get the word. But we do need to set aside time to synthesize from the word whole concepts. And we need to synthesize the concept of, of our purpose. Why do we do what we do. We are going to be doing a lot of theology this morning. We do theology every week, but we're going to be doing a lot of it this morning. Stay with me. It's worth it. We're looking big picture here. What is our purpose? We're going to get into the details in coming week, but this week, big picture. I want to walk through this statement piece by piece so that we will understand it, yes, but even more so that we will desire it with every fiber of our being, we will want to be rooted in this purpose with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. We will desire this with our whole selves. That's how we want to be rooted in this purpose. So let's take this thing apart one piece at a time. The statement, actually, if you look at it on the front of your bulletin, you can break it down into three pieces, and we're going to take those one at a time. The first piece is the ultimate purpose. Yes, the whole thing can be called our purpose statement. There's a portion of it that states our ultimate aim, our ultimate purpose. The second piece of it shows our ultimate plan. And the third piece of it gives our ultimate perspective. So, first, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time, okay? 
First, let's look at the ultimate purpose. Like I said, a whole statement can be called our purpose statement, but really it's the first two words that state our ultimate, rock bottom, bedrock purpose in everything that we do. What are those first two words? Glorifying God. This is our ultimate purpose, to put the glory of God on display. Glory, what's glory? That's a nice churchy word. Glory is whatever is beautiful, good, great about something. We know this instinctively. We talk about it. If I talk to you about the glory of my wife, I'm talking to you about what makes her beautiful, good, great. If you talk about the glory of a game, which not many people are discussing the glory of the most recent football game, but if you talk about it, Lots of Clemson fans love to talk about everything that made that game good. Auburn fans love to talk about what made that game good and great and beautiful. We're talking about glory, right? That's whatever good, great, beautiful. We, our purpose is to display the beauty, to reflect the goodness, the greatness, the glory of, of God. We can see this is our ultimate purpose in Matthew 28. This is why I've got you there. Matthew 28, I think we can see our whole purpose statement here, but we can see that our purpose is to glorify God right off the bat in verse 18. Look at it with me, Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, he's speaking to his disciples, and actually more than that, a large crowd. He came to them and he said, all authority, its power, majesty, all authority in heaven and on earth. That's another way of saying everywhere. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So this passage is commonly called the Great Commission. It's called that for pretty good reason. It's great in its scope, and it's a commission. Hence the Great Commission. What we're seeing right here, this takes place after Jesus has been crucified and risen from the dead. It's happening just before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. So just before Jesus is no longer bodily present with his disciples, he gives them a commission, a vocation, a calling, a purpose. They're to pursue this purpose until he comes again. This is their great commission, their great purpose in which they are to be rooted. And it's still the purpose of the church, for Christ has not returned. This is our purpose in which we are to be rooted. Shades, like the words that Jesus is speaking right here, he didn't just speak back then. He speaks them now. This is not a dead word. This is a word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is able to pierce the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow right now. The living Christ is amongst us by his spirit, and when we read these words out loud, you hear the voice of Christ. This is our purpose, that he speaks to us right now. What, what is the, the purpose? Glorifying Jesus to the ends of the earth. Our ultimate purpose is glorifying God. Do you see that? Look at it again. Jesus says, I think we can miss it. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does he mean? Like we confess that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. 
That he has always existed, even before he took on flesh. He has always been God. We confess along with John chapter 1 and verse 3 that all things that were created were created through him. He's the creator over everything. And not only do we confess that Christ is the creator, we confess along with Colossians 1.17 that he's the sustainer. All things hold together in him. He's the creator over it all. He's the sustainer of it all. Therefore, he is the sovereign ruler over all. Hasn't Jesus always had all authority in heaven and on earth? So what does he mean that it has been given to him? I think, you trace along with me here, see if this makes sense. I think that he means something like what I experienced in ninth grade. Now, I remember there was this one day I was in my literature class and we had a substitute and we loved to mess with subs. I apologize to anyone out there that works as a substitute teacher. God's grace be on your life. <laughs> but we had, these, uh, we had these desks that had a metal basket on the bottom where you're supposed to put your books, but we had discovered that there was a particular way you could rub the metal on that desk and make a very loud pitched, a loud, high-pitched sound. We called it making the desk sing, and you couldn't tell where it was coming from. And so we would do it and we would convince the substitute teacher that it was coming from the AC unit connected to our room, at which point he would call maintenance. And miraculously, when maintenance showed up, the sound quit. <laughs> maintenance guy heard nothing, left, and it started again. <laughs> so after like the fifth or sixth time the maintenance crew had been called, our dean figured out what was going on and he came and paid us a little visit alerted the sub to the situation, and he knew what was going on because we'd done this before. We were not very bright. <laughs> the dean did not pronounce punishment on us. No, he allowed our sub to determine our fate. Our sub was more than gracious with us. He only like made us write lines. But the point is, do you see what the dean, what my dean, what he did? He wanted all of us to know that no matter how much we thought we had humiliated the substitute teacher, he really had all the authority in that classroom. Like the dean didn't give, when he gave him the right to pronounce our punishment, he wasn't really giving him any new power or any new authority to let him pick our punishment. No, the dean was revealing to us the power that the sub truly had, the power that our humiliation of him may have hidden or obscured for a moment, but now all of a sudden it was revealed and on full display. In that sense, the dean gave all power and authority of the classroom to the sub in an infinitely greater way. After the humiliation of the cross, where Christ might have appeared to be powerless, God the Father raised him from the dead by God the Spirit, revealing his true identity as God the Son, the sovereign creator, sustainer, and ruler over all. He revealed the truth that he had all authority in heaven and on earth. The resurrection, this is just Philippians 2, right? The resurrection revealed the glory of Christ, his goodness, his greatness, 
His beauty. He's God, the one with authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus was always the glorious God over all. But through the resurrection, his father revealed that reality to the world. He gave publicly in front of everybody Christ, all authority and all power. And now, in Matthew 28, Christ calls us to announce that. To announce his glory. Go, therefore... All authority, heaven on earth, my glory, who I am, has been made known. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Do you see the logical connection that therefore is making? Like, this is not Jesus saying, I have all authority, so I can do whatever I want to do. And what I want to do is order you all to get busy making disciples. I got all authority. I can do it. That's not the logical connection of therefore. No, this is Jesus saying, I've been revealed as the glorious God over all. Therefore, go, announce it. Announce my glory to the world. My glory's been displayed. So declare it. Increase that display through your declaration. What is the ultimate purpose behind all? All that Jesus calls his church to do, display his glory. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, Peter speaks to the church. And he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In other words, you have been made the people of God. Why? Peter says, you've been made the people of God so that you may proclaim the excellencies, the glories of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter says, this is the purpose, your purpose. It's the same purpose that Jesus gives in Matthew 28. Our purpose is Christ's glory. The ultimate purpose is glorifying God. This has always been our purpose. This is a purpose for which we as human beings were created. Shades, you rewind the clock all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we are told that we were created in the image of God. What's an image supposed to do? Reflect. It's an image. Images. I know that's deep. I worked all week on that. An image. Images. It, it's to show forth. We're made in God's image. We are to image him, show forth who he is in his goodness, his greatness, his beauty, his glory. We were created to put his glory on display. And not just us. In fact, that's why all things were made. I mean, Colossians 1 and verse 16 tells us that Christ not only made all things, he made all things for himself, for his glory. Psalm 19.1 confirms this. The heavens declare the glory of of God, the heavens, that's the sky, space, stars, planets. This, this isn't a reference to some lofty spiritual realm where God is right here. This is the heavens, the sky, and space. It declares, it was created to declare the glory of God. In other words, when you look into the vastness of space, it shows you, it reflects a sliver of God's vastness, His greatness. When, when you stare at the beauty, of innumerable stars, you, you get a glimpse of the beauty of God that cannot be calculated. When, 
when you feel the power of the sun that sustains life on this planet, you, you are feeling one one millionth of a pulse of God's power, his, his goodness. The heavens declare the goodness, greatness, beauty, the glory of God. He made all things for his own glory. And he didn't just make all things for his glory. He does all things for his glory. You can find language that describes God acting for his own glory all over Scripture. Places like Isaiah 48 and verse 9, where God says, For my name's sake, for the honor, the glory of my name, who I am, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. This is God speaking to his people, telling them why he's going to defer judgment. For the sake and the glory of his name, the sake and the glory of his praise, he won't share his glory with anyone else. This is why he does everything. This is how Jesus taught us to pray for everything. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, hallowed, exalted, glorified be your name. Everything else flows from that. In all your provision of my daily bread, I wanted to glorify your name. In the forgiving of my trespasses, the deferring of your anger, I wanted to be for your name's sake. When you, when you deliver me from evil, I want it to be for your glory. Why? The prayer ends the same way it began. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus prayed this way. In John 17, as Jesus is headed to the cross, John chapter 17 and verse 1, here's what he prays about the cross. Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. Here's what we're aiming at in the cross. You glorifying me, me glorifying you, God glorifying God. This is why he went to the cross. This is why the ultimate, there are more reasons, but the ultimate bedrock, digging as deep as you can go, this is the ultimate reason he does everything that he does. This is the reason he saved you. Ephesians chapter 1 says that repeatedly. Ephesians 1 and verse 5 says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why did God adopt us through Christ? Why was that his will? To the praise of his glory. So that his grace and who he is and how he acts would be magnified. His beauty, his goodness, his greatness would be shown. God makes all things for his own glory and he does all things for his own glory, including saving you. And now he commissions us with this purpose, glorifying him. Now, stick a pin in that thought for a second. I think, if you like me, when we hear this, 
God created everything for his glory. He does all that he does for his own glory. God is God-centered. When we hear this, we don't like it. It sounds wrong to us. Because we don't like people who are like this. I don't like people who are all about themselves and their own glory. There have been so many people throughout time that this has been their issue with Scripture and with God. C.S. Lewis, before he became a believer, when he was an atheist, this was one of his largest objections to the God he saw in the Bible. God is all about himself. God is always commanding people, love me. What's What does Jesus identify as the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have you ever thought about the fact that that's a commandment? Like, how would you feel if I commanded you, love me with everything? Would not go over well with my wife. Why does it go over well with God? Lewis struggled with that. He says, God has always loved me, praised me, Worship me. This sounds wrong to us, but shades, nothing could be more right. And not only is it right, it is good that God is centered on his own glory. To see how it's right and good, we need to look at the second piece of our statement. Okay, So we've seen the first piece, the ultimate purpose, to glorify God. Even if we don't like it, we've seen it. Now we see the second piece, the ultimate plan. In other words, how are we going to do that? How are we going to glorify God? And here's the ultimate plan. This is how we state it, by loving him. And that's where we'll spend most of our time. By loving him, loving others, and making disciples. The ultimate plan, by loving him, loving others, and making disciples. Disciples. We glorify God by loving Him, wanting Him, treasuring Him, finding joy in Him. You glorify whatever you love. That's just how it works. Whatever you love, whatever you find joy in, you glorify. You can see this in children, right? You can see it in my children. Like if you come over to my house, my children, it won't take two seconds for them to bombard you with their favorite things. Karis will bring her camera to you and immediately want to show you all the latest pictures that she's taken. Levi will start bringing out all of these Lego creations. Talitha will marshal her army of baby dolls into the living room. Asher will just come and start filling up your lap with cars. They'll all do this while they sing the praises of these things. Because they find joy in the glory of these things. Asher, see my cars. Aren't they beautiful? Great. Good. They're glorious. They find joy in the glory of these things. And they want you to share that joy. They want to share that joy with you. They want you to see what they see. And so they glorify these things to you by loving them rejoicing in them. We all do, this isn't just kids, we all do this. We all find joy in the glory of someone or something, and we glorify that thing to the world by loving it. Like, you ever been around someone in a brand new dating relationship? Are they not just nauseating? 
they find so much joy in another person and they can't quit telling you about it. They find joy in the glory. We all do this. I, I can probably, if you have an office, I can probably walk into it and tell what you find joy in the glory of. You can in mine. Like I've basically got an Atlanta Braves shrine. Don't laugh. Most of y'all have like an Alabama or an Auburn shrine, okay? Like we all find joy in the glory of something or someone. There's just one problem. The glory of all the things that we love is temporary. Their glory is temporary and it will fade. And when it fades, the joy that it produces fades. Again, you can see this principle at work with my children. They quickly move. I've just listed to you all their favorite things. That's this week. Like they quickly move from one favorite thing to the next. Asher is all into cars right now, but the glory of the cars will fade. It won't be very new anymore, and along will come something else that looks even more grand and more glorious. The glory of the cars will fade, the joy they produced fades, and he'll be on to the next thing. And isn't this all of us? Isn't this our, our world? We may have something that we find joy in the glory of right now, but it won't last. It'll fade. And it's always joy in the glory of the next thing that will finally, fully satisfy me. Give me the joy that I see. It's, it's the joy that I'll find in the glory of the next phone. Isn't it amazing how right when the next phone comes out, yours is dumb. It was so cool, and now it's dumb. It can't do those little emojis that move with your face. Mine can't. It'll, it's the next phone, it's the next car. It's the glory of the next job or the next promotion or the next marriage or the next child or, or, or whatever. And the ultimate problem is that we are seeking joy in things that only have temporary glory. And the glory will fade, so the joy will fade. And your heart was made to be satisfied with nothing less than eternal glory. Your heart thirsts for eternal joy, joy that will never fade. And it can't find it because it looks to glories that fade. Your heart was designed to be satisfied with nothing less than the best, and there is only one best, and that is God. He is the only source of eternal glory that can provide your heart with eternal joy. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence, God, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Full joy forever. Maximum joy that never ends. One place in God. But do you see why it's right and it's good for God to exalt his own glory now. It's right because there is nothing more glorious. If you ask God to hold up that which is most glorious, he must hold up himself. It would be wrong to hold up anyone else. He would be a liar, unrighteous, and not giving you the best. 
If, if God is going to show us the person who's supremely worthy of praise, he must show us himself. It would not be right for him to show us anyone else. It is right for God to exalt his own glory. And it's right for him alone to do this because he is the only one that can be self-centered like this and selfless at the same time. Why? Because we know, as we've already been talking about, that our God is triune, one God who eternally exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Scripture shows us that the Father selflessly loves the Son, selflessly glorifies the Son. The Son selflessly loves the Father, selflessly glorifies the Father. The Holy Spirit empowers them both to do this. He selflessly glorifies them both by providing them with his power. All three persons committed selflessly to glorifying one another. This triune God is all about his own glory, self-centered and yet selfless. Like that's what that does to my head. This is, this is mind-melting beauty, greatness, goodness. Do you see the glory of that? It is right for God to be centered on his own glory. But it's not just right shades. It's good. It's good news that God has sent. It's gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. If this doesn't sound like good news, I would dare say you haven't grasped the gospel. This is the heart of it. It's good that God is centered on his own glory because that means he is committed, eternally, fully committed to exalting the only thing that will satisfy your heart, himself. God's commitment to his own glory is his commitment to your greatest joy. If his glory held up and exalted is the only thing that can satisfy your heart, then his commitment to his glory is his commitment to your Your heart was made to be satisfied with nothing less than the best, and the best is himself, and that's what he gives us selflessly. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. He gave himself. He loved you. How? He gave you himself. This is the gospel. He gave you him in all of his glory. This is love. There's nothing greater that he could give us. Our first parents, this did not sound right to them either. God was centered on his own glory. An idea was introduced into their head by someone we call Satan, the accuser, the enemy, who accused God of not being truthful, who accused God of not being good or great or beautiful. And our first parents, Adam and Eve, believed, God, you're not good, great, or beautiful. You're not glorious. I am. And I will center myself upon my own glory. They rebelled against that. And all of us have rebelled ever since. And Romans 3, 23 says that this is the result of our rebellion. We have all sinned. That's what sin is. Rejection of God as God and us putting ourselves in his place. Not about you and your glory, but about me and mine. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A better translation of the Greek there would not be fall short. It would be lack. 
We have all sinned and we lack that which we once possessed as our greatest joy. We don't have it anymore. We lack the glory of God. But the good news of the gospel, 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. Christ died. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins. Yes, but that's just a means. That's not the end. Your sins were a problem that were in the way of the end. He died, the righteous, for the unrighteous, yes, so that your sins may be forgiven, ultimately, to bring you to God, that which you lack, the glory which we exchanged. We gave up for the glory of ourselves and of other things. Christ died, paid the penalty for our rebellion to bring us back to God in all of his glory so that we get him as the satisfaction of our hearts forever. That's the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says it most explicitly. 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls the gospel this, the gospel of the glory of Christ. The good news of the glory of Christ. And it goes on in verse 6 to explain what that good news is. It's that God shines a light into our hearts so that we behold the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Here is the gospel of the glory of Christ. Through Christ, when you see his face, his beauty, what he's done, through him you get God in all of his glory for the satisfaction of your soul forever. This is the good news of the gospel. It's always been the good news of the gospel. We just finished like a two and a half year study of the gospel of John not too long ago. And this is the way Jesus constantly gives the gospel invitation for you to be satisfied with him. Did he not call himself the living water which will alone can quench the thirst of your soul? Did he not call himself the bread of life which alone can satisfy the hunger of your heart? This is the invitation of the gospel. It's the invitation of the gospel in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Like to become a disciple of Christ, Matthew 28 19 tells us what that looks like, doesn't it? To become a disciple is to be baptized into, I know that your Bible says in, better translation of the Greek right there would be into, baptized into the name, or into a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right there in Matthew 28, 19, that's not just a command about being dunked in some water. Make disciples by baptizing them, dunking them in some water. It is that, but it's more than that, because being immersed in the waters of baptism is a symbol that you have been immersed into a relationship with the triune God. That's why I told you that that word there in verse 19 is into, not in. It implies relationship. You're baptized, immersed into a relationship with the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we're baptized with water, that is a literal symbol of death and resurrection. You've died, you go under the water, you're dead and buried, you've died to an old way of life, the way of life that our first parents chose where they tried to find joy in anything and everything other than God. 
You're dead to that, and you're raised, brought back out of the water, raised to a new life with God as your joy, with him as your love. You've been immersed into a relationship with him for the satisfaction of your soul forever. And not only have you been baptized, brought into that relationship, but you now walk in that relationship with him as your joy. Is that not what verse 20 is about? Matthew 28 and verse 20. Like 19, says we're baptized, we're brought into this relationship with this God for the satisfaction of our souls. And verse 20 says what? That as we're discipled, we are to be taught to obey everything that he has commanded us. We're taught to walk with him, to go the way that he goes. When he gives us a command, we follow that. We, we go there. Why? Because we love him. We want him. Jesus himself says this in John 14 and verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you've been immersed into a relationship with the triune God, then you love to walk with me. Follow my commands. And his commands are not burdensome to us, as 1 John chapter 5 tells us. His commands are not burdensome. They're not a duty. They are our delight. It's my delight to follow his commands. Again, what's his greatest and first and foremost command? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If the glory of God, loving his glory, is your greatest joy, then that is a command to seek your greatest joy. That is a command. God commands your happiness. He commands you to find joy in him. This is why it's loving for him to command this. He commands your happiness. This is the way I give commands to my children. Like when I tell them, not allowed to play in the road, play in the yard. I am commanding their greatest happiness. They may not see it that way, but that's what I'm doing. His commands are not burdensome. They're not duty, they are delight because they command our greatest happiness to go with him, to be with him, to follow him wherever he leads. And when we do that, when we love him like that, glorify him by loving him, when we love him like that, it glorifies him before the world. When you love Christ, want Christ and his glory above all things. You follow him wherever he leads, whatever the cost. It shows the world his beauty, his goodness, his greatness, his glory. We glorify God by loving him. Like Asher with the cars, right? When we want God more than anything, love him. It glorifies him before the world. And shades, this is the most loving thing we could do for the world. Point them to the truth that their greatest joy, that which they seek in so many things, their greatest joy can be found in God and his glory alone. Is that not what's at the heart of this great commission in Matthew chapter 28? Is this not the ultimate instruction going on here? Jesus has said, my glory has been revealed through my resurrection. Now go and declare that glory that's been displayed. How? Invite the world into it. Invite the world into a relationship, to be baptized into a relationship with the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And once they are baptized into it, make them into disciples, teach them to obey, teach them how to walk with me, find their joy in me. We glorify God by loving 
him. That puts his glory on display. That's the most loving thing we can do for others. Invite them into it. We glorify God by loving him, loving others, which ultimately means making disciples. That's our ultimate purpose. That's our ultimate plan. But there is one last piece to our purpose statement, and that's the ultimate perspective. The ultimate perspective. In other words, for ultimate purposes to glorify God, the ultimate plan is to do it by loving Him, loving others, by sharing that love with them, making disciples of them so that they find their joy. If that's our plan, where are we going to do that? What people are we going to do that with? What's the ultimate perspective? We summarize it simply with these three words, among all peoples. We're going to do this among all peoples. That comes directly out of Matthew 28 and verse 19. You look at it, Jesus says that we're to go, therefore, and to make disciples where? Of who? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. All nations. The Greek word there for nations is ethne. You can hear our word ethnic or ethnicities, and that would honestly be a better translation. Because when you hear nations, sometimes you think nation-state. This, this is not saying, hey, I want you to make disciples in every country, This is amongst every people group. It's more specific than that. In other words, you go to every single skin color there is. You go to every single language there is. You go to every single culture there is. You ignore no one. You exclude no one. Everyone is invited to be brought into, baptized into a relationship with this triune God and to find their joy in him forever. We don't, Shades, we don't leave any people out of the invitation to this gospel. We love all people here in Birmingham and to the ends of the earth. We will not restrict this gospel to white or black. We won't restrict it to Asian or Hispanic groups. We will not restrict or contain, try to contain this gospel in Homewood or Vestavia or Hoover. Our purpose is to be a people who take the gospel to all peoples. That's why we do local. That's why we do global mission. We are to be a people who take the gospel to all peoples. Peoples. And Shades, as we, as we kind of bring this to a close and we set before us this gigantic purpose, glorifying God through loving him, loving others, making disciples among all peoples from here to the ends of the earth. Like that can feel so massive. And we're, we're a small congregation in West Homewood. It doesn't feel like we have the power to achieve such a purpose. And we don't. But that's why Matthew 28 verse 20 ends with a promise. It ends with a promise, an ultimate promise that empowers our ultimate purpose to carry out the ultimate plan all the way to the ultimate perspective. What what, what is the promise? Matthew 28, verse 20. Hear the words that Jesus Christ, present among us now, speaks to you, Shades Valley, now. Behold, I am with you always. Pentas, tas, himeris. All the days, the whole of every day. This isn't just a promise to be with you from now till you go. This is a promise every moment. I'm with you all the days, always to the end of the age until I come again, Shades. While you are working in the waiting, carrying out your collective vocation, your calling, your purpose, during that you're not alone, Shades, Christ is with us and Christ empowers us every day and always to be rooted in this purpose.
glorifying God by loving him, loving others, and making disciples among all peoples. Lord, may we be rooted in this purpose. Amen.